the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the World Wide Web and Quagmire as the internet runs out of hashtags and has to substitute real hash and eggs. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Bain intern Taylor Panachone. Hey, this time David Drake discusses his novel The Spark with us. Also along to enliven the conversation is Bain publisher and my boss, Tony Weisskopf. I really enjoy The Spark, which is kind of a far future retelling of the Arthurian mythos. And it's also kind of its own thing. David will tell us more about that in a moment. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of the Leiden Universe novel, Alliance of Equals, by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now here's the news. Hey, we have new hardcovers and trade paperbacks out in November, of course. Out now is Tim Powers' collection of short stories, Down and Out in Purgatory, the collected stories of Tim Powers. This is good stuff. It's award-winning stuff, storytelling magic stuff. I'm really happy to, uh, to be bringing this out. I highly recommend it. In fact, David Drake and I both wrote introductions for the collection to say how much we like Tim Powers' stories. Uh, the collection includes acclaimed tale, The Bible Repairman, where a psychic handyman who supernaturally eliminates troublesome passages of the Bible for paying clients finds the remains of his own broken soul on the line when he's tasked with rescuing the kidnapped ghost of a rich man's daughter. See, this is the kind of stuff Tim writes. A Bible repairman fixes Bibles by taking out stuff that the clients don't like. It's, it's just like, who would have thought of that? It's great stuff. And in another story, the title story, Obsession and Vengeance Survive on the Other Side of Death, Down and Out in Purgatory is the name of that one, where the soul of a man lusting for revenge attempts to eternally eliminate the killer who murdered the love of his life. This is pretty cool. It's about a guy trying to uh, take somebody out in purgatory. What else do we have, Taylor? Well, also out in November is a collection of tales from the first decade of the Jim Bain Memorial Award. These are the best of the best stories that either won or placed in the awards, which we give out each year at the International Space Development Conference in partnership with the National Space Society. It's an excellent collection of stories by Brad R. Torgerson, Jennifer Brozek, Sean Monaghan, Marina J. Lostetter, and more. And it is all edited by our wonderful contest administrator, the Nebula Award-winning William Ledbetter. Yeah, it's good stuff. Bill Ledbetter does a great job. The Jim Bay Memorial Award, the first decade, edited by William Ledbetter and Down and Out in Purgatory, the collected stories of Tim Powers, are now available at booksellers everywhere. David Drake is the Ur, the Tigress, the Indus, Bane Rider. He carries 23 great wounds all got in battle. 75 men has he killed with his own hands, and the Turks, they pay him a golden treasure, yet he is poor, because he is a river to his people. Okay, maybe that was Ad Abu Tayyip from Lawrence of Arabia, but along with Jim Bane and Tony Weisskopf, David Drake did define much of the tenor of what we do here at Bane Books. 
Hi, Dave. It's nice to have you back on the back on the podcast. Hi, Tony. Hi, Tony. Tony. <laughs> we also have Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf here with us as well. Uh, and you are a river to your people, David. <laughs> and so is Tony. <laughs> I'm sitting here with two rivers. It's amazing. The Tigris and the Euphrates. I get, I get to be the Euphrates. You get yeah. to be the Euphrates. Yeah, okay. that's it. All right. Dave is the creator of numerous novels and series, including the best-selling Hammer Slammers military science fiction series, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy series, and many others, also um, a trove of standalone novels. He is also the co-author of series ranging from the Belisarius novels with Eric Flint to the Citizen series with John Lambshead and the General series with S.M. Sterling, Eric Flint, and me, Tony Daniel. Dave is also the author of several high fantasy series, including the Lord of the Isle series and the Book of the Elements series. He's a prolific short story writer, and a lot of his early work is collected in recent Bane offering Night and Demons, which uh, is a really cool collection. And his time travel related stories are in the collection Dinosaurs and a Dirigible. And uh, he's got a story in the upcoming Star Destroyers, by the way. So there's new Drake short stories coming out all the time as well. Um, David is a graduate of Duke Law School, a Vietnam vet, where he served in the 11th Cavalry Blackhorn Regiment. Black Am I horse. right? Black Horse. Black Horse. Now I got the damn name. I always say battalion, and I know that's wrong. But it's a regiment, right? That's well. It's cavalry, so uh, you don't have battalions. You don't have squadrons. Okay, but, but it's a regiment. The proper way to say it is the Eleventh Cavalry Black Horse Regiment. Regiment. Yes. He is a gifted scholar of ancient history, and he reads Latin for now, fun. He reads Latin for, for fun. fun. <laughs> yes. He would just. Why else would you read it? <laughs> <laughs> True. Now out from Bane Books Everywhere is The Spark. This is one of those cool science fiction and fantasy blends um, where the science is so advanced and ancient that it appears to be magic to the characters. I love these kind of books. Uh, Dave, The Spark is set in a far, almost unimaginably far, far future, actually. There's um, hints that maybe it's even like 100,000 years in the future. And yet there are some resonances here with a particular story or two from our own Western cultural past. Um, certain knights of the round table, I might, uh, might be brought to mind. Is that so? Is there supposed to be an analogy here? What's going on? <laughs> well, um, I did an Arthurian. My first novel was actually an Arthurian novel of the dragon Lord. And I did it as, um, uh, sword and sorcery, and I didn't want to do that again. And sword and sorcery is pretty well dead, and I really didn't want to do the kind of high fantasy oh, Arthurian stuff that you you see, uh, the the Camelot sort of thing. And you know, I, I really it's been done. It's been done very very well, and I didn't want to do it. So what I did was take the Arthurian setting, the, the matter of written to use a 13th century French term, mm. uh, and treat it as story ideas in a future setting. I do the same thing with classical history. Sure. But, you know, quite a lot of the RCN series is actually done from uh, oh, 3rd century BC uh, Hellenistic history. Well, I did that sort of thing with um, the Arthurian stories, and um, put them 
imaginably far distance ahead in a literally shattered world. Uh, it, it isn't even a world in the sense we assume it. It's a, a series of points connected by a road, which is unexplained and possibly inexplicable. And uh, I told adventure stories that I took largely from the, uh, well, the Arthurian corpus, but also from other material, most definitely including folktales. Mm. That's um, the the setting is particularly it's just really cool and the fact that you you don't explain it away um, is uh, it it makes it grow in my mind as a reader so that I was trying to figure out what this could possibly be. Can you sort of give us a, a tour of the landscape? You were beginning. There's the road, right? There's the waste. There's the here and the not here. Uh yes, there is consensus reality, and there is something that is not consensus reality, which is also inhabited. Uh, you could call it fairyland if you wanted to, but it's not treated like fairyland. And uh, the viewpoint character has dealings with creatures from not here, but he is he is in no sense, he does not enter fairyland, could not enter fairyland, probably. And, and when you say this is unexplained, uh, yes, it is unexplained, but the viewpoint character is basically a smart peasant, and he wouldn't be the one to be explaining it if anybody could. You know, the focus is on his problems, uh, I won't say I was modeling him on Sir Percival, but um, that comes closer than most of the other models you might find. Hmm. So, you know, I, I I did my research on this one. I mean, I do. <laughs> uh, but the research was to make a solid setting and I'm not in the business of writing books with great glossaries or technical appendices. Uh, I've written quite a lot using Roman settings, and I almost never few weapon words that are explained in context. I almost never use a Latin word in stuff with Roman settings. Mm. Uh, you know, I just think that's bad art. Um, the reader ought to be able to read and understand the story without going to a glossary or a dictionary. Um, I'm less good on not sending them to dictionaries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a pretty good vocabulary, and um, I'm... <laughs> I think people ought to know these words. It's the correct word. So darn it. Exactly. Never heard anybody to go look up something in the dictionary. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I don't make up words. 
But e- even so, even even without without uh, using words to distance, um, you 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 managed to create a really weird and strange uh, world that 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 fear, feels otherworldly, and yet because we we have these Arthurian uh, overtones. Is still very very familiar. It's a it's a really great combination, um, uh, and I I really in, in enjoyed this one. Um, uh, I I honestly think this is, with the exception of Redliners, which is like nothing else they ever wrote, or probably ever will write. Uh, I, I think this is my best book. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I hope that means it sells a ton. I'm not counting on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I did a good job of what I was doing. This is a book that anybody ought to be able to read and ought to ha- have a good time with it if they do read it. Well, that, that's, a, that's a very pal sort of viewpoint, doing, doing a good job. <laughs> yes. <laughs> pal being... For those of you who have not read the manuscript yet, go out and buy it. Uh, <laughs> for, for Pal is the name of the hero. Yeah. So tell us more about Pal. He's he is a good-natured guy. Um, people think he's naive, but he's really not naive. So much. He's 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 good at understanding and fixing old tech, especially. Um, can you just uh, just sort of describe Pal to us? He's um, the center of the book. Um, he is the narrator, and um, he is somebody that is really a winning character, I think. Um, I, I had fun with him. Uh, the, the magic in the book is that some people can use the technology of the ancients. Uh, and as you said, this is... Ancient means really ancient, uh, tens of thousands of years, certainly. And the artifacts have mostly been worn or broken up by the processes of the universe. Not, not so much human activity, although perhaps that too. Um, and some people have particular knacks for fixing ancient artifacts by filling in the molecular, the gaps in the molecular structures. They, they may not, they don't understand what the stuff they're filling in does, but they can do it just as a, you know, a mechanic doesn't have to understand internal combustion, really, in order to make an engine work and work better. Uh, But this is done mentally in a trance. This is never really explained. It is implied that it was an attribute of all the ancients. Uh, it is not absolutely certain that present-day humans are descended from the ancients. Mm. I, that, that's very possible, but, you know, you cannot be sure of that. And there are other intelligent life forms 
in the universe. Uh, speaking here with certainty of not here. Yeah. And when you meet creatures from not here, you will generally be on the road and there will be generally an attack by one party on the other that leaves one party dead. And it's possible to believe, and many humans do, that the, the creatures of not here as a beast are hostile to humanity. It's equally possible to believe, as Pal basically does, that this is an instinctive reaction to something utterly different. Uh, same way people squish spiders or try and crush snakes. Hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's not necessarily a rational response at all. Although, you know, <laughs> if you've learned that, that this kind of creature will always attack you, the chances are pretty good that if you see one of them, you'll attack it. Hmm. And this works for the beast as well as for the human. Right. Uh, this, and if you think of the beast as the equivalent of elves or fairies, uh -huh. in in a very different, or you know, these are things that are not human, do not have human motivations, and are potentially very dangerous. Uh, but they're not necessarily demonic. And they're not they're not really rivals because they can no more live in fear than a human can live in not here. That is consensus reality yeah. or fairyland. Yeah, but the the encounters are, are very reminiscent of uh, of the ones that knights encounter um, when the when they're on their quests um, with random knights, other knights uh, standing at crossroads, guarding bridges. Um, you must, you know, you shall not pass. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, and 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 those resonances uh, really really work very well. I I wanted to get the feel of a medieval culture, and, and that's both. I, when I wrote The Dragon Lord long ago, I was trying to do a realistic picture of Dark Age cultures, yeah, which were pretty damn dark. Um, this is a high medieval culture, and I'm using not the reality of the 14th, 13th, 14th centuries, mm -hmm. but rather the romantic picture that artists of the 13th and 14th century had of their culture. Yeah. The fictional one. Yes, yes, and, yes. And that's basically the one that's been passed down uh, through Camelot and high fantasy. And this is a really interesting culture. Uh, I wouldn't want to do it straight, but I'm not doing it straight. Right. And I, I had really a lot of fun with this one. And, you know, that, that's why I, I did the book. That's why 
Basically, I, I can write space opera, and I do, and I like writing space opera, and the RCN series is really a lot of fun, and I continue to have fun. But if I did only RCN novels, um, they'd stop being fun. Sure, yeah. Me, and probably therefore for... <laughs> for the rest of us, yeah. Yeah, and... You know, you, you can see that happening um, where an author has a very successful series. Uh, the Xanth series of Kersantny. The first half dozen of those are really, really fun books. Yep. And he came to realize fairly early on that they were the only books of his that he could count on a large readership for. Yeah. So he started doing only Xanth books. And he got bored. And the books really aren't... Well, very few books are as good as the first half dozen Xanth books. Well, this this is an interesting problem for uh, for science fiction and fantasy in general. Is is how do you maintain these long running series? We have them, um, um, and we have this whole mass market um, uh, way of distributing these stories. But how do you maintain interest in readership? Um, how do how do you how do you keep up the fun um, without destroying uh, what was uh, what was interesting to begin with? Um, it's as I say, it's an interesting problem, and, and authors solve it in, in in different ways. Um, when you wrote the Spark, you were not thinking beyond uh, one uh, one book. Um, Correct. Uh, well, I'll tell you the, the most basic reason I wasn't. I had no idea if I could do anything this different. Right. Right. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not really calling it a novel because it's not a novel in the in terms of structured the way that uh, most modern novels are structured. Um, I might call it a romance in the in the traditional uh, medieval term, not the modern. Yes. Yeah. It, it it absolutely is. It is a romance. But having said that, you realize that yes, you could. <laughs> well. does have a story. Um, maybe we should talk about that as well, but because there is this land, there is a, a, a city, Dunad, and that has a leader who is trying to sort of pull humanity back from the ashes of the fall of a, of a great empire. Um, and he's got these marshals called champions. And Pal, that's what he wants to be, right, Dave? That, that's, that's his... about his companion, too. Ah, uh, I think you mean Buck. I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, animals, and for most people, dogs, 
on dogs in this series as they did in the general series, some of you will remember, and I have not stopped catching flack for that <laughs> ever since, although I'm, I'm quite pleased with it. Uh, however, animals see a different level of reality from what human beings see with their own eyes. Mm-hmm. And dogs, animals, but dogs, provide both a view of the road and the ability to move quickly within a different reality. Uh, and they, the thing that dogs also can do, and this is not something that most people use them for, but dogs can predict motion much, much, much better than humans. Hmm. Dog eyesight generally isn't as good as human eyesight. But when you toss a piece of pepperoni, for example, mm-hmm. a dog, he can jump and get it in the air, which an untrained person would have great difficulty snapping up a, you know, a little piece of sausage sailing through the air like this. Um, because a, a very high percentage of a dog's brain is given over to motion prediction. Hmm. And uh, for a warrior using moving weapons, uh, this is an enormous advantage over a human who is not using the dog's ability to predict. And Pal, although not the biggest and strongest of the people around, has this intellectual capacity for judging motion and uh, becomes a much more effective fighter as a result. Uh, There are other people who have the same skills and greater strength, and, you know, all other things being equal, they'll beat the hell out of him. (laughs) But he's intellectually very good, and because he does work with ancient artifacts, he knows strength and weaknesses of not only his own hardware, but that of his opponent. And (laughs) this has an additional advantage that the opponents know that he knows better than they do about hardware. Yep. So they're assuming at a gut level that if something goes wrong for them, it's because he's magically superior to them. He's not. He's just optimizing his equipment. Yeah, it's the uh, the Alabama factor. Um, you you, <laughs> you have the, the the intelligence is a force multiplier, and reputation is uh, a force multiplier. So yeah, they, 
it's all very well to say the enemy pulls his pants on one leg at a time. Right. But, you know, you don't really in your gut believe that. <laughs> well, I know Alabama doesn't. But... <laughs> so, um, Powell doesn't become a champion at first. In fact, he fails at his, his first attempt. Um, and uh, he meets this guy named um, Guntram, who has... Uh, who who takes him under his wing, uh, much like young author, uh, although Pal is not an author analog, uh, we do have a Merlin-like figure in Guntram, don't we? Uh, no, we have a Blaze Guntram. Ah, okay. Uh, the Merlin figure is Lewis. And yes, this, this is a very... Lewis is much more organized than Guntram. Oh, yeah. In the book. <laughs> and, and he is much better in his narrow range of specialties. Uh, These are makers. Yeah, wizards. Wizards, oh, yes. Uh, for, for those of you who don't have Greek, or I guess Scottish, um, poet, the word poet, means maker. Mm. Thus you have Dunbar, uh, his the, the Scottish lament for the makers, Okay. He's writing about these great poets of yesteryear who are dead now, like Chaucer. And I was deliberately working off the concept of being a poet. Not, not because it's the same mental muscles, but because it's a similar exceptional skill at a particular thing that doesn't prevent you from doing anything else, but makes you better at this very specialized skill. Right. And uh, thus, Pell is also a warrior. But what sets him really apart is that he's a maker along with being a warrior. And it's as a warrior that he wants to shine, and he's going to Dunad, <laughs> Carleone, uh, if you prefer, <laughs> to be a knight of the round table. Well, he's also a troubadour, in a sense. And Guntram is simply a maker. Not simply in, in that he's awfully, awfully good at it, but he doesn't much care about, you know, whether the leader will be able to reunite mankind. He, he's just not interested. Yeah. Um, it's fine. And he was even the leader's foster father. But it's not his... Concern. It is that of the leader, John. It is that of Lewis, the uh, the Merlin equivalent. Uh, again, I was using very much the existing Arthurian cycle, and in this particular area, uh, using the Idols of the King by Tennyson mm. as much as anything. Yeah. Uh, the, the Idols of the King 
really give you the feel of what I was trying to do. I, I used the, the prose Lancelot, well, translations of it, and um, the romances mm -hmm. of Chrétien de Foix. Yeah. But for the feel, I wanted feel of ten of them. And to a pretty considerable degree, I think I did that. So, <laughs> does that help? It does. Well, you have Powell like, uh, like Percival and Gawain is, um, is kind of, it, it's incredibly attractive to, to the ladies, and yet, and incredibly oblivious to them at the same time. Um, well, hey, Gawain very definitely was not oblivious. Yeah. Uh, he, he was a womanizer and, you know, perfectly comfortable with it. And his only real problems um, that way came with sort of assuming everybody was the same. Mm. And Especially those green fellows. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, but um, the, the whole crisis of um, the pros of Lancelot yeah. is that you know, Gwen just assumes that Lancelot is screwing the, uh, the maid of Astolat. You know, this, this isn't a, a matter of concern to him. Uh, oh, she's a, a pretty girl, and yeah, he, he's got himself a nice one. And he's burbling about this to Guinevere, who becomes furiously angry, uh, jealous of the maid of Astolat. Um, who dies a virgin, by the way. Yes. Uh, because Lancelot didn't touch her and wouldn't touch her. But Guinevere doesn't assume that. And Gawain, in all innocence, um, has no idea that Guinevere is having it off with Lancelot. And so he, you know, he's just talking about, oh, <laughs> my friend got lucky, you know? It, it, it there's a lot more character, character development in some of these romances than I appreciated before I started really studying them with a notion to turning them into a story I could work with in, in my varied um, <laughs> medium. Well, it's a different set of conventions, um, but it didn't mean that there weren't nuanced characters. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, this part of uh, Pal's character development in the book is that he starts out uh, chaste and a little prudish, um, and he comes to understand people, particularly women, much better by the end. Yeah, and maybe himself a little better also. Yeah, sure. Because it's important to him who is a kid from the stick. You know, it's important to him to think that not only everybody's like me, but everybody ought to be like me, and right. they ought to be like I was raised to be. You know, even though he knows that people back home in the hamlet, um, 
get up to all the sorts of things that people do in Hamlets or anywhere else. But he was raised to be a proper kid, uh, much as <laughs> much as I was raised by my mother to to just well, yes, there are people who behave badly, but we don't. Right. Who don't? Yeah. And you know, he comes off that. He is naive in the sense that he is just totally ignorant of the world. And by the time the book is over, and indeed before the, the book is much more than half over, he's learned that it's just not as simple as he was raised to believe it should be. He, he becomes less naive, but he doesn't become spoiled. Um, and, and I think that's why it's pleasant to go adventuring with him, um, is, is that he's not ruined by his adventures. No, no. Uh, he, he's a good guy to spend time with. He will do his job. He will do his job every time, even if it kills him. But he's not full of himself. He's still a kid from the six in his heart. And, you know, he basically makes that clear. He does not want a harem. He does not want to go out and get drunk all the time. Uh, he does not want huge quantities of money and power, which he could have. And he knows he could have it. But he can't really understand why anybody would want it. He's there to be mankind's champion. And that's important to him. That, that is his goal. But he's not, I mean, a lot of the fun in the book is that, is that a lot of the characters think because Pal is high-minded and seems, for, you know, is, is, seems from the sticks, which he is, um, that he's gullible and easily taken advantage of. And they find out differently. And several times it's just, just fun when, when uh, uh, you know, when that doesn't turn out to be the case at all. And they've taken on a very formidable fellow in Pal. I had a good time with that. Uh, he, he's not stupid. You know, that's the crucial thing. There's a lot he doesn't know, but he does learn, and he learns fast. And, you know, he, he will keep going until he's stopped. And he's damn hard to stop. And so does Buck. <laughs> <laughs> his, his brave mongrel dog. <laughs> but very much like Pell. Yes. Uh, you know, he's he's not sophisticated. He's not, you know, famous bloodline or anything like that. But he's going to be there. He's going to be there for his master. And, um, and he is. Though, as I recall, he's much more willing to give up his virtue. <laughs> <laughs> He's a dog. <laughs> so uh, Tony was hinting that that perhaps there's a uh, more that we're going to see in this uh, out of pal. Is, is there going to be a sequel? Or if I die this afternoon, there's twenty seven thousand words of the sequel, and it's not 
a direct, well, it's a sequel, but, you know, this is nothing that you would have to uh, read after reading the first one if it's what appeared. But I am working on it now, and there are new challenges, which is what makes this fun. I mean, it, I, I try to do each book differently, and I do, but what I think is different may seem very similar uh, to somebody's only seeing the gross outline, which is fine, but I have to go a lot deeper into it to write them. Yeah. And, and therefore, doing something whose gross outline is utterly different from, say, the space opera that I just turned in. Because um, I did. So hell should bar the way. Yep. So yeah. hell should bar the way will be out in April, by the way, in hardcover. It's the next book in the RCN series. And the E-Arc will be out before the end of the year. Yeah. Pro- <laughs> probably next week because it's, well, we shouldn't say for sure. We should not say for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, are there going to be copies at World Fantasy Con? No. <laughs> well, heck. <laughs> Well, there's no way to get an April book in for for a, a Octo- late late October or November title. Um, but the e art will probably be but, for sale. But the spark. Oh, the spark. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, the spark will be there. Oh, good, 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 good. Yeah. Even if Larry is dead. Even if Larry is dead. The spark is at booksellers right now. Oh wow! Good. I thought it was. Uh, Oh. oh, November 7th. Wait, I'm sorry. Yes, well, this will, I'm going to put this up Friday after next, so. Okay. Oh, right, right, right. I mean, Friday after this coming Friday, so it'll be Friday week. Oh, well, in that case, it's out, but. Yeah. <laughs> but but I'm working in consensus reality, remember. Yeah. <laughs> but World Fantasy will be that weekend, so it, this will post the Friday of the World Fantasy okay. convention. I mean, it's not exactly a fantasy, but it's a fantasy in feel. Yeah. And, well, you know, Tony Publisher and I had a discussion whether the treatment of the cover should be fantasy or science fiction. And we both decided on balance that treating as fantasy was better. This is technically wrong because it's technically SF. But this is the way uh, Jack Vance's Dying Earth stories are technically SF. Yep. And and they are, but they sure feel like fantasy. Sure. Well, this is very this is very reminiscent of the Dying Earth stories and um, of Gene Wolfe's um, Severian story uh, mm-hmm. series as well. Um, and the cover could be. I think the cover is great. By the way, this is a Todd Lockwood cover. And it can be taken both ways. Um, it's a beautiful cover, I think. Uh, and it was... The production is superb. Uh, the the overfoiling on his shield was exactly right. Tony, you, and J. 
Jenny did a great job on that. I am very appreciative. That, that that's Jenny Ferry. She's uh, she's the cover designer for for this book and and uh, most of Dave's other books uh, for Bain. Um, and many others uh, for us as well. A long time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yes, I, I am pleased with the way the way this uh, turned out. Um, I gave Todd this a very difficult assignment um, to do a a science fiction book um, that felt like a fantasy, and uh, he he uh, came through in spades. It's a gorgeous portrait of Pal, um, and it really gets across the feel of your setting. I. I... I was wondering what was going to happen with it, and there were other ways to handle it, but none that I imagined going as well as this one did. Uh, this, this is a case where, even if you normally read books on Kindle, and, and that's available, uh, but take a look at the hardcover, uh, not in reproduction. Take a look at it in a store. You know, hold it up to the light. Let let the the light shimmer off it. This is really a nice looking book. So. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Well, I'm I'm really pleased that it all turned out the way we wanted it to. So you mentioned that uh, the Hellshire Bar the Way will be out in April, which is the next RCN, and you are working on a sequel to the spark but out now at bookstores everywhere and at booksellers everywhere is the spark by david drake um it's it's available and out there and beautiful to look at so you could you know even if you have the the ebook you should probably just go pick up the hardcover because it's so pretty <laughs> and uh if you have the hardcover why not just keep it in good condition and read an ebook and buy the ebook too <laughs> Wait, wait to upsell Tony. <laughs> <laughs> and the e-art will be out soon as well. So, um, but unfortunately, Dave does not have a lot of uh, does not have a lot of typos and such. Um, so the e-art is going to be practically the same. <laughs> so you're not going to get a, a mistake-ridden um, advanced reading copy if you if you go to Bainey Books and and get the e-art. Dave, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. I mean, you know, genuinely my pleasure. Good people. Uh, we, we, we like talking with you, Dave. <laughs> I, I'm just such a, a cheerful, upbeat person. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> this is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leiden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But reestablishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corville's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself 
denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. He was flat on his back, on some firm surface, quite naked. The air was cool and spiced with mint. Directly in his line of sight was a pale, golden face, half averted and tipped upward, as if consulting a status board above and behind him. The throat was slim, the chin firm. Perhaps the cheek was damp. Lips were slightly parted, as if the board offered hope in the wake of despair. Even as he wondered who this might be, a sigh shivered through those parted lips, and the face angled downward, a woman's face, softly rounded, with slim, tawny brows over misty green eyes. Aliana, he said, recalling the voice from the calm. He raised a hand to touch her warm, damp cheek. You appear to be not quite yourself. Her lips quirked. So I am given to understand, she said lightly. Her voice was the voice from the calm. But you must admit it to be quite a trick that I appear at all. He felt his mouth twitch in response to her tone and suddenly shivered as if the air had grown much cooler of a sudden. The woman who claimed to be Aliana caught her breath and stood. Come now, she said briskly, reaching down to take his hand. Let us get you up on your feet and dressed in something warmer than the air. Ah, excellent. Father exclaimed, turning from where he had been standing over the chessboard, frowning down at a new problem. I am naturally desolate, but I have been called into a meeting. I don't expect it to last more than a quarter hour. In the meantime, I wish you will do me the honor of sitting at the desk and reviewing the document on my screen. I would like your thoughts and a recommendation of appropriate action when I return. And with that, he was gone. Past her and through the door in three long strides, leaving Paddy alone in the office. She did not immediately approach the desk and her task, but stood where she was, counting slowly. When she had reached 44 and the door had not opened again to admit father with one more instruction, which put a 90-degree spin on what he had asked her to do. Then she went to the desk and sat down in his chair. Letter of Interest, Aldergate Enterprises to Tree and Dragon Family. Oh, very good, she thought, moving the chair closer to the screen. 
If they could attach a new trade partner, even one of modest means, so long as their melanti was... Patty blinked, reread the first paragraph, and opened a notepad up in the bottom right corner of the screen. She made a note, read the second paragraph, made several more notes before moving on to the third. She was reviewing Aldergate Enterprises' credit report when the door opened and Father strolled in. Still reading, he asked, crossing the room to the wine table. May I give you something to drink, Patty? Cold tea, please, she said, flipping the screen back to the TerraTrade almanac. Certainly. She heard the clink of glass against glass, read the last paragraph of the letter of interest again, and turned the chair, meaning to get up. But father was already settling into the visitor's chair, utterly on the wrong side of the desk, wine glass in hand. The cup holding her tea was sitting on the stone coaster on the desk. Please continue, father said politely. I don't wish to disturb your work. I believe I may have finished, she said, picking up the cup and taking a sip of cool tea. Well then, father raised his glass encouragingly. What do you recommend me to do? I recommend, Patty said carefully, that we have nothing to do with Aldergate Enterprises. I suppose that we do have to formally decline their offer, if only to keep Ms. Deagos happy. Decline their offer, father repeated. Paddy, this is only the third letter of interest we've received since the clan's relocation to Shorebleak. Surely we can't turn our faces away. He was going to make her work for it, was he? Very well. Paddy had another sip of tea and put the cup aside. I think we must do exactly that, sir, she said calmly. Far from wishing to become partners in trade, it is clear from their letter that Aldergate Enterprises wishes to acquire the right to trade under our mark and name. All of our affiliates show the tree and dragon, father objected and one or another of our trade names is included in their docking packets. Yes, Paddy agreed. However, none of our other affiliates claim to be Tree and Dragon family. Aldergate Enterprises wishes to lease the right to use our name as their own non-exclusively. They would not be carrying our goods except by purest chance, and they would not in any way, as is explicitly stated in paragraph two, be affiliated with tree and dragon family Shorebleak. Oh, father murmured, that's irregular. One might say so, she answered, miming his tone of polite foolishness. TerraTrade has Aldergate Enterprises listed as an ongoing criminal enterprise. Well, but we both know, don't we, Paddy, that there may sometimes be an error in those sorts of lists. He was making her walk up the hill in both directions, drat him. 
We do, yes, know that errors may be made. That is why I also referenced the shipping news and the Trade Guild newsletter and Taggart's trade news. Taggart's is hardly a reputable source. Not at all reputable, she agreed. However, it serves very well as corroboration. Aldergate Enterprises makes no honorable offer. The leasing fee is quite generous, Father commented, raising his glass. Paddy smacked her palm against his desk. Now you are just toying with me, she said sternly. Really, Father, you had no intention of accepting this offer, and well, I know it. He looked a little sheepish. I will own that it seemed rather one-sided. But you know, I was somewhat rushed, that stupid meeting. It was very good of you to go to the trouble of researching the situation for me. She sighed, but inclined her head at just the correct angle for a gracious acceptance of his thanks. Cousin Corrine would have been greatly impressed. Well, father said, setting glass aside, I will want to see your letter declining Aldergate Enterprises' generous offer before it is transmitted. Only to come into the way of appropriate phrasing, you understand. In the meantime, I hope you will be able to assist me with putting together a small notion that I intend for Langlast. She eyed him. What sort of notion? He smiled at her. Why, We've been so dull lately that I thought it would do us all good to host a reception at Langlast Port. I'm afraid that I'm hopelessly stupid about such things, but you are so competent and accommodating that I am certain you won't mind taking care of the details. A reception? She opened her mouth to say that she had never put together a trade reception in her life and closed her mouth because, of course, he knew that. She inclined her head once more. I am honored by your faith in my abilities, she told him. I wonder if you would do me the favor of holding yourself ready to assist by answering questions, and perhaps offering insight? Certainly, he said. I'll be pleased to stand your second. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Taylor Panachone, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a bowl of hand-ground fairy dust with all the tiny parts removed that can stick in your teeth. The accrued good luck of the Vudon Loa of motorcycles and remote-controlled asteroid mining resupply tankers. Plus thanks, praise, and huzzas for David Drake, author of The Spark. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 